It's September 10th, 2014. The message this evening will be chess pieces. And I'd like to start with a video for you. If you really want to understand the rape and slaughter being committed in the name of Allah by the Islamic State, you have to study the history of Muhammad and his companions, a history found in the Hadith and the Sirah literature. But you can get a pretty good outline of the Islamic State's message and tactics by reading the Quran, which Muslims believe to be the direct word of Allah. For those of you who don't have time to read the Quran, here's a top ten list of the most essential verses for understanding ISIS. In the Bible, Jesus says that God loves everyone. In the Quran, not so much. Surah 3, verse 32. Say, obey Allah and the Apostle, but if they turn back, then surely Allah does not love the unbelievers. According to the Quran, Allah only loves obedient Muslims. I wonder why ISIS doesn't seem to have much love for non-Muslims. Believe it or not, Allah's complete lack of love for non-Muslims plays a role in how non-Muslims are to be treated. Surah 48, verse 29. Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and those who are with him are severe against unbelievers and merciful among themselves. Those who are with Muhammad, i.e. Muslims, are severe against whom? Against unbelievers. They're merciful to whom? Only to their fellow Muslims. But politicians and the media just can't figure out why ISIS is so severe against non-Muslims. There are lots of ways to be severe against unbelievers. Here's one, Surah 4, verse 24. Also forbidden are women already married, except those captives and slaves whom your right hands possess. This may be confusing without the historical context, which you can read in Sunan Abu Dawud, 2150. When Muhammad won the Battle of Altas, Allah had already revealed that Muslims were free to rape their female captives. But at Altas, the Muslim army captured certain women along with their husbands, and some of the Muslims started wondering if raping these women counted as adultery, because they were married. That's when Allah revealed Surah 4, verse 24, which says that married women are indeed forbidden as sex partners unless they're your captives. If they're your captives, Rape them all you want. Allah couldn't conceivably care less that they're married. Heard about any groups raping their female captives recently? What about people who try to stop the Islamic State from establishing Sharia? Surah 5, verse 33. The punishment of those who wage war against Allah and His Apostle and strive to make mischief in the land is only this, that they should be murdered or crucified or their hands and their feet should be cut off on opposite sides, or they should be imprisoned. This shall be as a disgrace for them in this world, and in the hereafter they shall have a grievous chastisement. Notice that there are several penalties, including death, crucifixion, and dismemberment, for the vague crime of making mischief in the land. Since the crime is vague, Muslim groups like ISIS can pack all kinds of offenses into this verse. And yet the U.S. State Department just put out a video making fun of ISIS for crucifying their enemies. When Muhammad was completely outnumbered, he had to put up with idolaters. But once he had the most powerful army in Arabia, the message of Islam became convert or die. Surah 9 verse 5 contains Allah's final marching orders on dealing with idolaters. 
When the sacred months have passed, slay the idolaters wherever you find them, and take them captive, and besiege them, and prepare for them each ambush. But if they repent, and establish worship, and pay the poor due, then leave their way free. Lo, Allah is forgiving, merciful. So kill them unless they convert to Islam. Sound familiar? Since idolaters have to convert or die, you might be wondering why ISIS gives Christians a third option, the option of paying jizya, tribute money. Surah 9, verse 29. Fight those who believe not in Allah, nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden, which hath been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth from among the people of the book. The people of the book are Jews and Christians until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. So the benefit of being a Jew or a Christian, according to Allah, is that you won't necessarily be slaughtered for refusing to convert. You have the option of paying tribute money to Muslims in acknowledgement of your inferiority. Is it just me, or is ISIS following the Quran to the letter? But ISIS doesn't just attack unbelievers. Muslims are also targeted. Why is that? Surah 9, verse 73. O Prophet, strive hard against the unbelievers and the hypocrites and be unyielding to them. And their abode is hell and evil is the destination. The Arabic for strive hard here is a form of the word jihad. So Muslims are commanded to wage jihad not only against unbelievers, but also against hypocrites, people who claim to be Muslims but aren't doing what Allah tells them to do. The penalty for hypocrisy can vary depending on the severity of the hypocrisy, but when Muslims deviate from core Islamic doctrine, they find themselves in the apostate category, and the penalty for apostasy is death. So when ISIS kills Muslims who aren't adhering to central Muslim doctrines, they're just doing what Allah commands. But what about all the peaceful, westernized Muslims who condemn killing in the name of Allah? Sadly, Islam isn't defined by westernized Muslims. It's defined by Allah, who says in Surah 9, verse 111, Surely Allah has bought of the believers their persons and their property for this, that they shall have the garden. They fight in Allah's way, so they slay and are slain. Allah defines believers as those who slay and get slain. They keep killing until they get killed. Doesn't sound much like our peaceful Muslim neighbors, but it sounds an awful lot like ISIS. Muslims are only allowed to seek peace when they aren't in a position to violently subjugate their enemies. Allah says in Surah 47, verse 35, Be not weary and faint-hearted, crying for peace, when you should be uppermost, for Allah is with you and will never put you in loss for your good deeds. When the Muslim community is strong enough to slay the idolaters and to subjugate the Jews and Christians and to fight the hypocrites, peace is not an option. If you seek peace when you should be uppermost, you won't have much ground to stand on when ISIS knocks on your door and tells you that you're a hypocrite. This final verse might seem out of place because it's not about rape or slaughter, but you can't really understand how the verses about rape and slaughter fit into Islam as a whole without understanding Surah 2, verse 106. Whatever communications we abrogate or cause to be forgotten, we bring one better than it or like it. Do you not know that Allah has power over all things? 
People in the West have been trying to condemn the Islamic State by quoting peaceful verses of the Quran. How can you guys call yourselves Muslims when the Quran says there's no compulsion in religion? But those peaceful verses were revealed before Allah commanded his followers to slay idolaters and to subjugate Jews and Christians and to fight hypocrites. So the most important verse you need to know if you want to understand the Islamic State is Surah 2, verse 106, which lays out the doctrine of abrogation. Earlier verses get abrogated or canceled by later verses, which means that versions of Islam that oppose the sort of violence being committed by the Islamic State are now obsolete. I don't know if that is as enlightening to you as it is some. I feel like I've been shouting this from a rooftop since about 2004. If Muhammad said that you should respect people of the book, but later it was revealed to him that you should strike at their necks, the later statement replaces the earlier statement, the doctrine of abrogation. I was told this by Jewish political science majors in the city of Jerusalem in 2004, and I had no idea the extent to which it would affect our lives. Here we are on the eve of a September 11th anniversary, and yet these things are still so little understood. Tonight is not a class about Islam. There are plenty of messages on our website about Islam, its pedophile prophet, its satanic god, and its devilish book. If you are sitting in here at this point and you're not sure where I stand about that, I imagine you'll get the gist as we move forward. I'm more concerned about your lives. And when we face things like the potential for tomorrow to be another anniversary event, I think it's useful to look and see how the men and women of God through history have handled these things. And not just Islam, but every trouble that you face. Could you turn with me to Habakkuk, the eighth minor prophet, and let us pick up in the first chapter, and we will start with the sixth verse. Now, if you're not familiar with it, Habakkuk is a temporary of Jeremiah. He's a contemporary of Zephaniah. Um... This means that he is prophesying prior to a Babylonian captivity. This means that devastation is about to come on Israel and he can sense it, but it has not yet happened. And look at what he says in the sixth verse. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places, not their own. How interesting that that spirit has been around this long. When we say dwelling place is not their own, you may think it's simply based on envy. It's not. Islam believes that Allah is being diminished anywhere that he was once worshipped and is now not the majority worshipped. Well, if he is Satan, and I believe he is, the entire world was under his control and it's our job to take it back. So this means that we are in inherent conflict. They are feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. You know, this is one of those verses that popped up in my Bible computer today. They're wolves at dusk, fiercer than wolves at dusk. You know, 
If you can see a wolf in broad daylight, it just looks like a big dog. And if he's alone, it's probably not really intimidating. But any of you who have been in Romania with me, you hear howling in the distance and it's nighttime and you're in ancient Transylvania and every werewolf movie you ever saw comes to you. I hope you've not seen those. When you can't see it, when it's shrouded in darkness and mystery, when it's not understood, clearly defined, it gives it a fierceness. One of our aims is to shine light on the devil's schemes so that you understand what it is that we're contending with and you ought to have this reaction. Oh, it's just Satan. Instead of the idea that there's some mysterious super force here. We are seeing what our president called a JV terrorist group rise and take over most of a nation, become the wealthiest terrorist organization in the history of the world inside of two months. And it acts as if, we act as if it was some kind of mystery. I understand that right now our leader is addressing the nation. I'm addressing God's people. And I'm telling you that Habakkuk faced these things. He knew that it was coming. He knew that God had allowed it to rise. And he teaches us an attitude about it. He says, A fiercer than wolves at dusk, their cavalry gallops along headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like the desert wind. They gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. They sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose strength is their God. You and I stand in a unique position. Our weakness is our strength. Our inability to cope is our coping mechanism. It makes us reliant upon the living God. And when we're reliant upon Him, we find out that a little guy like David can knock down a big guy like Goliath. When we are reliant upon Him, there is unlimited power at our disposal. Their strength is there God? Well, praise God, man's strength is pretty darn limited. If you would turn with me to the right in your Bible, I would like you to see the third chapter of Habakkuk, and maybe you'll make a discovery with me. I made this discovery earlier today. I've read through this Bible many times, not as many times as I need to, not as often as I should like to, but many times. And I've never noticed this. The very last words of Habakkuk. For the director of music on my stringed instruments. Raise your hand if you see that. Now speak out loud. Say, I see it, Pastor. What kind of people find out that those who are ruthless and impetuous, those who promote their own honor, those wolves at dusk, those who deride kings, those whose strength is their God are coming? And you decide to write a song. The book of Habakkuk seems to be a song written not any different than the Psalms. We have a directive at the end of it that it's for the director of music on my stringed instruments. Let us back up from there a few verses. Pick up in 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept in my bones and my legs trembled. Does it sound like he's scared? Yet 
I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Habakkuk teaches us to look into the threat, to look into the challenge, to acknowledge the problem and say, and yet... I will wait patiently on my God. My joy is not dependent upon my circumstances. My trust is not affected by what's happening around me because the living God is able to reach down from on high and make me to stand. This drives out fear, friends. This drives out calculation. The only calculation that we have to make, it's not where you put your gun, how you load your gun, or if you have a gun. The only calculation that you need is, am I full of the Holy Ghost? Because if you're full of the Holy Ghost, then come hell or high water, you are prepared. You have not leaned on your own arm. You have not made your strength your God. You have made God your strength. What a difference this is. I'm not fretful and I'm not fearful, and yet I believe the days are growing dark. One of the reasons that I'm not fearful and I'm not fretful, and I hope that you do not receive a spirit of fear as we talk about these things, is because we serve a God who sees things hundreds of years in advance. You know, I struggle to know. Have have you noticed that we heard an awful lot about the polar ice caps expanding? In fact, I'm sorry, decreasing is what we heard. In fact, I think by this time, a popular vice president had predicted that we would have no polar ice caps. Poor little polar bears, right? Of course... Satellite photographs have proven that the polar ice caps have expanded over the last 19 years and not shrunk. We have more record cold temperatures than warm temperatures. How many of you would bet $1,000 on tomorrow's weather report? Because we know that they're always right. And yet these scientists claim that they can see hundreds of years in the future. Well, you didn't come here to hear political speech. And that's not my point. My point is when men say it's been scientifically proven that thus and so will happen, when they say that if you go against this, you're going against reason, you're going against science, you are a fanatic and you're a lunatic, which is what men say. They're proven wrong over and over and over. But the living God announces things centuries in advance. And there's not a singular statement that he has ever made that has been proven to be false. Under the topic of God's foresight, turn with me to Isaiah 46. Whatever it is that you encountered today, perhaps business has become tough. Perhaps a relative has become tougher than you expected them to be. Maybe, maybe today had unique struggles in it for you. I want you to understand that these things do not catch our God by surprise. And when we are tempted to panic and act as, oh no, what are we going to do? Remember who led you into this day and to whom you belong. Remember whose strength it is that you're relying on. And suddenly today's problems become small in the shadow of our God. 
In Isaiah 46, starting in verse 8, remember this, fix it in the mind. Take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. (laughs) Do you think God is happy to be God? It sounds to me as if he's not resting upon his laurels. It sounds to me as if he is actually speaking out into the heavenly realms and proclaiming that there is none that is like him. It is almost like a subtle challenge, come and try. He's not intimidated by today. And there's a good reason for it. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come? I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I... Oh, come on. I will do all that I... Now, I don't know about you, but let's just suppose we were going to wrestle. And I looked at you and said, I'm going to do to you everything that pleases me to do. That either is an incredibly boastful statement in which you should probably challenge or you need to find somebody else to wrestle with. The living God is announcing that his purpose cannot be overcome. He is announcing that he will do whatever pleases him. Does it sound to you like he is intimidated by a few AK-47s? Then why must the church be? From the east I will summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. When God has destined a plan, that plan comes about. Has sin been increasing in the world or decreasing? According to Daniel, sin has been increasing. Let me ask you, is sin able to stop God's plan from happening? If sin were able to stop God's plan from happening, we would not see a progressive revelation of His will. We would see a decreasing revelation of His will. When our God says He will do all that He has planned to do, understand something. Sin may stop you from being a part of it, but it will not stop it from being done. We have no reason to fear things are progressing exactly as our God has said they would progress. Listen to me, you stubborn-hearted. You who are far from righteousness. I am bringing my righteousness near. It is not far away and my salvation will not be delayed. I will grant salvation to Zion, my splendor to Israel. So we can have despots and dictators. We can have wicked men who stand and call for the destruction of Israel. But what did our God say? Salvation is near. The same God that said they would be resettled in their land said they would never again be uprooted from their land. The question is not what will happen to Israel. The question is what will we do with Israel? Eric, you're still on such a geopolitical subject. Does this not bleed over into our lives? In this passage, it becomes clear that there is no one like our God. It becomes clear that he declares the end of a matter from the beginning of the matter. Can you trust him? If the living God has a purpose in your life, can you trust him to fulfill that purpose? Psalm 138 and 8 said that he would fulfill his purpose for me. I want to encourage you, church, no matter what you face. Very often, the largest obstacle that you will face 
It's you. The presumption that God will do something a certain way. The disappointment if He does not do it the way that you presumed that He would. His purpose does not shift around. Brother Matthew may miss his purpose. Brother Eric may miss his purpose. Perhaps Brother Wade has missed his purpose. That will not affect God's plan for your life. How sad it is when we descend into an attitude that makes God so small as to be begrudging when others don't do what we think they should do because it has affected our purpose. Our king announces centuries in advance what he's going to do, and no one can stop him. He said that he would take a man to fulfill his purpose. The man he's speaking of is Cyrus. This is in the year 740 B.C., maybe 720 B.C. Cyrus comes on the scene as a world power in the 530s B.C., 240 years beforehand. God has named him. Would it surprise you to know that Cyrus was not a worshiper of Yahweh God, but Yahweh God dictated the times and places he would live and the work that he would do? Our God is bigger than your secular boss. Our God is bigger than your financial troubles. Our God is bigger than what plagues you, and his purpose will stand. Will you stand for his purpose? Or will we settle for something that is more palatable to us? In Christ, we've learned to say total lordship. In Christ, we've learned to say we will do whatever he tells us to do. Of course, as long as it appeals to us. The charismatic community is among the worst. We hear in different directions when we don't like the way the previous direction is going. Church, this is a time for the deepest of convictions. I would like to encourage you to consider some things. What has God actually announced to you? It's very easy to add to what God has actually announced to you. I was traveling in a car moving some dear friends of mine and I began to think upon fire evangelism school because so many of the people that we love came out of that school. And while I thought about the school, God visited me for a moment in the car. I began to weep and I felt His presence. And it was glorious. And then the conclusion that I drew from that is I came and I told my wife, I think that our son is going to fire evangelism school. I think that God is going to send him there. And then by the next time that I told it, I said, I believe God is sending Judah there. He visited me in the car. He told me so. Of course, he never did. Never said anything of the sort. I was simply thinking about fire evangelism school when he visited me. I have an appointment there and I truthfully don't know why. But how uncomfortable is it to not know why? And how hard is it not to fill in those details? And before long, you have an entire framework built that God did not build in the very thing that keeps you from repenting and accepting God's will is your presumption of God's will. Feels like it's not faith if we back up from it. After all, we've declared it. Yes, but did God declare it? Sometimes I have encouraged people, what do you love to do? What do you feel anointed to do? That may be what you're called to do. Well, that's a great place to start, but it's not the only criteria. I love to shoot guns, but I'm pretty sure it's not the calling on my life. I really like to eat tacos. 
I find it interesting that God can announce a play in advance. The enemy moves in secrecy. Our God doesn't even have to do it. As I've said in previous sermons, he can look right at the devil and say, I'm going to put this foot on that side of your face in Genesis 3, and there's not a thing you can do about it. And you know what? He can't. What would happen if we worked hard to display that attitude? While we're here, why don't we turn to Isaiah 44? 200 years. 200 years before the man's mother named him. We have this verse. This is Isaiah 44, starting in verse 24. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. Who forms you in the womb? Mario, who's forming your baby in the womb? Then it's going to be a perfect baby in the name of Jesus. It doesn't matter what others have planned for us. Amen, Spencer McLean. Our God is forming our children in the womb. Not just Jeremiah was formed in the womb. This is what the Redeemer who formed you in the womb says. I am the Lord who has made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by itself. Sounds like he's pretty qualified, doesn't it? If he formed you, if he made the habitation that you live in, if he made the habitation that he lives in, pretty qualified guy, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners. What does it matter if people speak bad things over you? What does it matter if they predict your failure? Our God makes fools of false prophets and diviners who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense. The most logical argument will not stand up to the God who formed you, who set your purpose, who set his purpose. Have you never faced an airtight, logical argument that you could not win and yet it was wrong? I was told that I would cut grass for a living, that my wife should learn to clean houses because that's about all we would ever amount to. Because it turns out that the Lord's will for me was to drop out of a traditional educational path that frankly was easy for me. He wanted me to humble myself. I went to work as a janitor in the school that I graduated from. Then I began to learn at the hands of a little hippie pastor who had just returned from the mission field. An amazing man of God, but certainly not the kind of man that men line up to put his name on their resume. And you know what? It turns out God's plan for my life was better than my plan. Who carries out the word of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers. Who says of Jerusalem it shall be inhabited and of the towns of Judah they shall be rebuilt and of their ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry and I will dry up your streams. It's almost like he's just bragging now, isn't it? Let me ask you, what is it that the Lord cannot do? There's not a thing that he can't do. Do we have any reason for concern? Is your life in ashes? Has it not turned out the way that you want? Does that mean that he can't make flowers come out of those ashes? I'd like you to ask yourself a question. Are you sure that your plan for your life is God's plan for your life? Part of repentance is accepting His will 
for you in every situation. And let me ask you while you were certainly standing there saying, yes, I know, I know, I know God's will for my life. How many times have you been wrong before? How do you know that you know God's will for your life? I've known more people. How many of you have seen the program American Idol? Is it safe to say that most people that go on American Idol believe that they can sing? Is it also safe to say most are wrong? Turns out that we're pretty poor at perceiving ourselves sometimes. What if you can really, really sing? Does that mean that you win American Idol? But I bet everybody that goes on American Idol that can really, really sing believes that they're there to win it, don't they? And yet it doesn't happen. So what do you do with that? Well, you could conclude that anybody who can sing is destined to be on American Idol or you could conclude that that's not the only criteria. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of, what's that word? He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. I can't begin to tell you how incredibly deep this is. The year is 740 B.C. Do you know that the temple has not been destroyed yet? And he's talking about it being rebuilt. Do you know that Jerusalem has not even been invaded, much less fallen? And he's talking about it being rebuilt. Do you mean that we serve the kind of God that can talk about your restoration before he's even let you know you're going to fall? It's almost like he knows what's going to happen before it happens. It's almost like he allows this to be torn down just so that he can rebuild it. How many times your vision has to be torn down? How many times that bowstring gets so far back and you're sure that it's about to be released only to find out he's picked a different arrow or something? Visions, they have to die and they have to be resurrected. And you find out that God never lied to you. You began to lie to God about what he said. You find out that the living God gave you a hint and you wrote a book. You find out that you presumed more than he said. And so you end up dealing with a lot of heartache that God never intended for you to deal with. So what on earth does this have to do with ISIS and Islam? I'd just like to say that American Christianity is based on all kinds of presumptions that are not true. And I can't tell you how hurt people will be when they find out that God was not interested in their health, wealth, and success, that the point of serving Him was not their happiness. And yet even in that, the faith of some will be resurrected. The gospel is about being broken in God's presence, coming to the absolute end of yourself and Him speaking life to you. And yet the first time that He speaks to us even a little bit, we're pretty sure that it's glory upon glory upon glory. And usually what He has called us to is enduring upon enduring upon enduring. He called Cyrus by name over 200 years before the man's mother conceived him. This has caused more people to doubt the authenticity of the book of Isaiah than you can imagine. 
And yet it is among the strongest proofs in all of history that Isaiah is inspired. Named the man who would rebuild the city before the city was invaded, before the country was invaded. The northern kingdom of Israel has not even been invaded yet. This, To put this in perspective, this would be like in the Revolutionary War, prophesying about World War II and the rebuilding of Germany and Japan afterwards. I mean, this is extraordinary. And why would it be included in the Word? Because the Lord wants you to know that He's had His eye on you a long time before you realized it. He's got good plans for you. They may not be your plans, but they are good plans. How many of you are parents in this room? Imagine that you have planned a beautiful vacation for your children, but they've become upset with the car ride on the way. And they begin to berate you about the time that it is taking to get there. How does that make you feel? Consider it in your prayer life, please. Could you turn with me to Isaiah 43? In Isaiah 43, let us pick up in the fourth verse. Since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give men in exchange for you and a people in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid. I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for. Whom I created for. Whom I created for. What is the reason that you exist, church? It's not so that you can be happy. It's not so that you can be rich. It's not so that you can be problem free. It's so that you can achieve glory for the living God. He created you for His glory. I love the idea that people float around. He created me to worship. It's sweet. It's a nice song lyric. It's just not true. I love the idea that He created me to love Him. And that's wonderful, but it's not true. It is far more scriptural to say He created me for His own glory. And it happens to include worshiping Him, loving Him, being faithful to Him. The way that He gains glory through us is when we die to us and live to Him. When He accomplishes more through us than we could have accomplished through ourselves. In short, when our own strength is not our God, God is our strength. Whom I formed and made. He says, lead out those who have eyes but are blind and who have ears but are deaf. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the formal things, former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say, it's true. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh. Not Jehovah, but Yahweh. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God 
among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days I am He. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? It turns out that the living God not only can announce centuries in advance what He's going to do and name the people who are going to do it, The living God can even call the directions of their movement. Again, Isaiah written somewhere around 740, 720 B.C. We have not so much as had a northern invasion of the of the northern ten tribes. Much less have we had the southern kingdom of Judah fall. One begins in about 720. The other begins in about 586 B.C. And yet, did you notice, we have directions that they would be called from. In verse 5, do not be afraid for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and will gather you from the west. Since May 14th of 1948, Jews from around the world have been able to immigrate freely into Israel from the west. They've been able to immigrate freely from the east. Eastern Europe did not hold Jews back. They were actually happy to get rid of them. The West did not hold Jews back. You could move from the United Kingdom. You could move from America to Israel without any problem. I will say to the North, give them up. Stalin had been murdering Jews. Russia was oppressive to Jews. It took a United Nations resolution to allow Jews to move back into Israel out of Russia. It had to be said, give them up. And between 1989 and 2003, 1.2 million Jews came from the north. But Isaiah said that almost 800 years before Jesus. He said it before they had been dispersed the first time, or the second time, or the third time. You mean he can call the directions of movement? He says, I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Operation Solomon in 1991 from the nation of Ethiopia is the largest airlift in a single day in human history. It turns out through DNA testing that Ethiopia had a large population of Jews. They didn't look like many of the other Jews, but the Hebrew language was alive and well among them, although it was spoken with a strange accent. The Torah was alive and well among them, although it had a couple vowels difference. Not one meaning of one word was actually changed, just the pronunciation. But it turns out that Ethiopia did not want to let go of 15,000 of its citizens in a day. They pay taxes, you know. So the living God had to say, do not hold them back. Israel drafted a letter, sent it to the United Nations and sent it to Ethiopia and said, We want you to give up these men because we recognize anyone in the world that has Jewish parents as a citizen of Israel, if you can prove it. They can continue to be a citizen of Ethiopia or anywhere else that they come from. We'll give them dual citizenship, but we want the people that God has settled in this land. And in Operation Solomon, the South was told, do not hold them back. And 15,000 Jews returned to Israel from south of Israel in a single day in one airlift operation. What kind of God can call the direction 
of movement of his people centuries and centuries in advance. Do you think he's failed to understand that you feel put off, that you don't get to do whatever it is you think you should be doing right now? Do you think that he has failed to understand that today was hard for you at work? Do you think he's failed to understand what he's asked of you? Or is it possible that he knows exactly what he's asked of you and said, it's for my glory. Could you get with the program and put a giant smile on? See, when we can smile in the face of adversity, it means we were made for something more than ourselves. When we can look on September 10th and laugh and say, come hell or high water tomorrow, whether the fig tree blossoms or the olive crops fail makes no difference. I'm going to rejoice and rejoice and rejoice in my God. When we can write songs and sing them in the face of an invasion, it says something about the greatness of our God. It was 1878 years between the time that Israel was destroyed under the Romans and Jerusalem sacked and it was reconstituted as a nation and God didn't sweat it a bit. If he's spoken something to you, it is worth hanging on to. It's also worth examining what he actually said to you versus what you may have extrapolated out. If you're a mother, it's an incredibly high calling. If you're a grandmother, it's like a crown of wisdom. If you are a daddy, what could be more important than directing your household? I want you to hear something, church. We want to prepare you in every way for ministry. We want to prepare you in every possible way, but we need to be on our guard against ambitions that God has not ordained. That's what's called selfish ambition. And the book of James says where you have selfish ambition, there you find every evil practice. Every. Say, well, I don't want something evil. I just want to do something good for God. It's not good for God if it is not what he has told you to do. We need to move to a place of maturity beyond asking, what can I do? Beyond asking, what do I enjoy doing? And say, what is in the benefit of every other person? Philippians 2 and 4 says that. It says, each of you should not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. We need to get to the place where we desire, as Corinthians said, to excel in the spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 12, but not just the spiritual gifts. So it is with you, since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in the gifts that build up the church. When we are craving the things that we believe God has called us to do, why are we craving them? For our edification or for another's? This is such a slippery slope and it's so easy to do. Many artists have sung about it. Is this one for the people or is this one for the Lord? Do I simply serenade for the things I must afford? Anybody recognize those lyrics? From one of the more popular Christian bands. I actually like them. A moment of clarity and honesty. It gets confusing. Do we do the things that we do for God's glory or ever so suddenly? Are we doing them because they're simply fulfilling to us? Because I love to eat tacos, but I'm not sure it does anything for the Lord. 
I'm a better shot than a lot of people too. I didn't realize that till I got to practice a little. I, I'm, I, I like to go shoot pistols. I especially like 45s. I recently came into the possession of a 45 that I like an awful lot. And I can even shoot it left-handed. And I like to do that. It makes me feel good. I walk out with my chest sticking out. I don't, I don't run to wash the gunpowder off my hands. I like the way it smells. I like everything about it. And yet I'm not sure it's further in the kingdom in any direction. So I need to be careful how much time I want to invest in that. But what if it's not shooting guns? Why do I want to preach? Is it for your benefit or mine? Why do I want to teach? Why do I want, why do we have this ministry? Can you say that even a ministry can become idolatrous? When the ministry exists for the ministry. When we don't look and say, you know what? What we need to do is add a pastor because the people's needs are not being adequately met. Instead, when we say, let's add a pastor and then go find the people to support that pastor's existence, has that not become idolatrous? Guys, we are facing real evil. We are facing really desperate times. This is not the time for us to get overly fascinated with all the things that we can do. This is the time to ask, Lord, what would bring you glory in my actions? When you think of chess pieces, a knight moves in an L-shaped fashion, yeah? That's just how he was designed. A bishop can move diagonally an unlimited number of spaces. A pawn, one space forward, one space diagonal in a kill situation. A rook, forward or sideways. A queen in any number, any direction. A king, any direction, but only one space. How about this? Can we agree it's a little bit awkward if your soldier, the pawn, decides it wants to be a queen? Just because you can do something doesn't mean it's the benefit of the board that God has set. What if Cyrus had decided that he was an excellent fisherman and he wanted to spend his life fishing? Where would the rest of the world have been? Anybody question that Cyrus might have been a good fisherman? What difference does it make, though? In the kingdom, we need to get clarity about our functions. We need to get clarity not just because we like to do certain things, not just because we can do certain things, but because you were created for God's glory, His glory, and no other reason. Your life is to bring Him glory. Well, we're in Isaiah, and before we leave it, turn with me to chapter 49. Have you ever heard the term high calling? That brother has a high calling. Does that mean that somebody else has got a low calling? Somebody else a medium calling? How do we rank callings? How does that work? If God told you to do it, if in the book of Jonah he appointed a worm, did the worm have a high calling or a low calling? Well, I don't know. You could ask the worm. Maybe the worm thought that his calling was low. But if the worm didn't do his job, then the book of Jonah is ruined. So was it a high calling or a low calling? (laughs) Compared to what? Have you noticed that ambition creeps into a church when we begin to compare callings with each other? 
Israel did this. They barked at the potter for making the clay a certain way. Are you in Isaiah 49? Look at verse 22. This is what the sovereign Lord says. See, I will beckon to the Gentiles. I will lift up my banner to the peoples. They will bring your sons in their arms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. High calling or low calling? High, why? Why is it a high calling? What if the Lord reduced you to simply a stepping stool for his people to get to Israel? I mean, how would you feel about that? Well, in the sense that it completes God's plan, and his plan revolves around Israel, it's a glorious high calling. In the sense that what you really wanted to do was be in the next Reinhardt bunker, and maybe you can preach like a madman. Well, then it's, you know, it's, it's a distraction. Why is it a distraction? Because it's not what you wanted to do. Is that not idolatry? It is. It's idolatry. Church, if the Babylonians were really descending on us tomorrow, would you spend your time arguing over which gun you shot? Would you spend your time arguing over what your role was in the battle? Or would you just be happy to be a part of the battle? Somewhere we could regather the idea that we are simply lowly servants. And when we've been completely obedient, we would say we're not even worthy to sit at the table and be happy that we're there. I have found something in human nature, in my own nature. I don't want any responsibility. I'm completely humble. And the more responsibility that I'm given, the more I crave it. The more authority I'm given, the more I crave it. Maybe we could stop and every once in a while say, Lord, what is your will for my life? Because the stakes are very high. Turn with me to Psalm 119. We're going to leave Isaiah. I have just a couple more minutes with you. We have a national point to make and we also have a very personal point to make. The national point is that the times have never called for more seriousness. We need to shine a light in the darkness because the world's been deceived. The very personal point is you may not get to pick your role in the battle. God may have picked it for you. You know, if you go to Israel today, you will find men with PhDs that are sweeping the ground. You will find men that can cut and carve stone. You will find men that have extraordinary talents working way outside their field because it's not what Israel needs them to do. If they know that in what has become a secular society, that it's more important for you to do what is needed among the body than what you find the most fulfilling personally, do you know you can't immigrate to places like Australia if they don't need your profession? You apply based on your profession. If you really feel called to Australia, you might have to change your profession. What if you felt like you were a doctor? What if you were skilled to be a doctor? I worked with a Polish man that was a physical therapist in Poland. But we don't recognize his degree. So you know what he does here? Massage therapy. You know why? Because he believes God has called him to live in America. Said, but poor guy, he spent so much time invested in that. No, you know, he's happy to be in America. In Psalm 119, pick verse 73 for me. Your hands have made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. Who made you? 
He did. Who formed you? He did. What do we need? We need understanding to learn His commands. We need Him to reveal to us not just what we can do, but what we should be doing. You know, Matthew was fortunate. When he was in high school, he knew that he was a center on a football team. He knew that he was a middle linebacker. Those things really never changed. Do you know that I wore a lineman's number? I was an offensive guard that pulled and led in certain plays, but I also returned punts. Do you know how awkward it is to wear a number 75 and return punts? When they decided that I was a tailback, I wore the number 44, and yet I also played down guard on the defensive line. And when there was somebody out and we weren't playing down guard on the defensive line, I played outside linebacker, and for one miserable game, I had to play free safety. How does that work? So, well, it's a small, miserable team. <laughs> well, that may be very true, but there's something to be said for utility players. When the chips are down and it is all on the line, we do away with preference and we do what we must. Church, that kind of attitude may have to resurge. You know, what would happen if we had no sound systems? We had no lights, we had no buildings to meet in. I bet you would find an anointing that you never knew that you had, and it may be different than what you've aspired to. In Proverbs 20, in verse 27, I imagine we're close to the hour mark here. If you can give me just a couple more minutes, I won't waste your time. The lamp of the Lord searches the spirit of a man. It searches out his inmost being. Do you think the Lord knows your desires? Do you think he's concerned? I promise that he cares how you feel. But he also expects you to adjust your feelings to his glory. Did you hear me? He expects you to adjust your feelings to his glory. Wow, it's very quiet. Anybody ever had to make a hard adjustment? Oh, my goodness. Be sitting in marriage counseling. Have your date picked. Invitations out. Honeymoon tickets bought. And the living God say, not on that day. I've picked another. You could get mad over something like that. You could certainly leave a church over something like that. You might even hate the people that told you what God had said. Of course, for those that can be obedient to what God is actually saying... Oh, they find glory. They might even find all kind of freedom, children, and wonderful things in their life because the Lord is looking for the one that He can gain glory through despite their feelings. Can we be honest? You don't feel like going to every prayer meeting? Can we be honest? You don't feel like coming to every church service? Can we be honest? You don't always feel like being obedient. But then we don't walk by our feelings, do we? We're relying on Him or we're not. I would advocate for an entirely different kind of lordship tonight. Not one that's just happy to be in the church. Not one that's just happy to be somewhere in the right sphere. One that lays down your ambitions and picks up his. Says, Lord, what can I do tomorrow? Because my observation of the body of Christ is that there are a lot of wonderful, amazing people that yearn for something that is different than what God has called them to. What about the simple glories of something like Titus 2? The older women teach the younger women to love their husbands and be reverent to the Lord. 
Is that a high calling or a low calling? Well, I guess it depends on how badly you need it, huh? Have we ever seen a time, ever, that we need more wisdom from our elders? That we need more solidarity in the kingdom of God? Church, we need to rethink what is high callings and low callings. We need to rethink what is useful and is not useful. While we're talking on this subject, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says that you were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's the last part of the 10th verse. You were created in Christ Jesus to do good works. If He searched out your inmost being and the work that He's laid in front of you to do doesn't match your desires, the question is, do you think He simply failed to understand you? No, 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 that's not it. See, the problem's everyone else. They don't understand what it is I'm called to do. I thought people's sin couldn't keep God's will from getting done. Do you see how discontentment can grow in a body of Christ? Everybody wants to do... Let's, let's, let's decide right now where we're all going to eat afterwards, right? How many opinions will there be in this room? About as many as there are people here, but I'm all for tacos. Church... He has prepared events in advance for you to do. Can you imagine that we stand before Him and we go, that event, I didn't notice it because it's not what I wanted to do. It's not what I felt particularly good at. You know, it didn't feed my soul. Yeah, but it was right there. I put it there for you to do. Can I go ahead and tell you that I had dreams and ambitions about facing headhunter cannibals for Jesus? I had dreams and ambitions about preaching where no one else would go. I had dreams and ambitions about a great many things. You know what was not among them at all? Doing marriage counseling. Never occurred to me, not in a million years, but Curtis, Mary, are you glad we're doing it? You like it? Do you believe that it'll save lives, that it'll help people? Is it helping you? Oh, how about that? Turns out that my ambitions don't play into God's plan. Hmm. I've watched people shipwreck decades of their life because they believe they were something other than what God put in front of them. Do you think that I cannot preach to cannibals? Is there anybody here who thinks I couldn't do it? But that doesn't have anything to do with anything, does it? What did he put in front of me to do? Proverbs 16.2, can you put that on the screen? Then we're going to close with a flurry of scriptures on a single topic. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. That is an easy verse to simply dismiss. I know my heart. I know my heart and and... And it's innocent. Well, how do we square that with this? How do you know that your heart is innocent? I've met so many mothers that want to do anything other than watch their kids. (laughs) And what could be a higher calling than watching your children? I know so many daddies that would rather hunt, rather fish, rather stay late at the office, anything they could do other than pastor their own family. In fact, they show up in church all of the time telling me what they can do for the church and I'm going, what are you doing in your own family? 
Are you disqualifying me? Why do we overlook the obvious that God put in front of us for something distant? We do it because we've decided what we want out of the kingdom walk and it doesn't have to align with God's will. All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. You know, it is a great thing to know that you are doing something and feel an anointing in it, and it is not at all what you would have chosen to do. It's the glorious feeling of your father's approval because he has the right to move the chess pieces anywhere he wants on the board. Isaiah announced Cyrus. Daniel explained the way the wars would occur. Ezra and Nehemiah lived it, but it never caught God by surprise. And neither do the events of our lives. I'd like to close with these handful of scriptures. Could you put Psalm 135, 5 through 6 on the screen? If this was a Monday night, I could hand these scriptures out and then it would be uh, easier to get them. Know that the Lord is great. Can everybody say amen? amen? That our Lord is greater than all gods. Can you say amen? You can stomp your feet and say greater than Allah. You can stomp your feet and say greater than Muhammad. The living God, the Lord does whatever pleases Him. He does what? He does whatever pleases Him. Yeah, that's like a big chest bump. Bam! Whatever pleases Him. In the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and in their depths. Let's go to John 8, 29. This will get to the point. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone. For I always, I always. Is there ever the possibility that what pleases him, and he said he's going to do whatever pleases him, whether in the heavens or on the earth, whether in the seas or on the dry land, he's going to do what pleases him. But how does he do it? He does it through us. Is it ever possible that what he has told you to do may not, Be pleasing to you. Maybe that's why I said that you have to deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow him. It is required of us to put his pleasure over our pleasure. How about Ephesians 5, 8 through 10? For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light. So far, so good. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out, find out, he's going to do whatever pleases him. The question is, do you know what pleases him in regards to your life? Or have you been concerned with what pleases you? The two could be the same. Or they could be very different things. <laughs> very often in my life, the test does not come when he told me to do what pleases me. <laughs> when he told me to do what I already wanted to do, it was not much of a test of obedience. It's when he told me to do the thing that I did not want to do that would please him, but not necessarily please me, that I really got a chance to find out what it was like to have his strength work through my weakness. Until you've picked up a phone and your hand is trembling because you cannot call the person on the other line and your voice is quivering and you were thinking, I would rather fight a hundred men than make this phone call. But Lord, for you, 
I want to do what pleases you. Till you've asked somebody to forgive you that didn't just step on you, they stomped on you because it pleases the Lord. Until you've laid down your ambition and taken up His, how can we say that we have found what pleases the Lord? 1 John 3, 21 through 24 is our very last verse today. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we obey His commands and... See, we have confidence before Him because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. I've been preaching about these topics. I'm going to mention Islam and I'm going to mention selfishness in the body of Christ until He returns. And I'm going to do that because it's the pollution of the world around us. We are being told constantly that what God wants is what pleases us. We are being told constantly that Islam is just a religion of peace. They're both equal lies and they both are equally destructive. We need to be able to do what Habakkuk did. He was a prophet and sometimes the best way to prophesy is look right in the face of the danger that you would rather not face and sing a song that says, even if nothing goes my way, it is my great delight to rejoice in the Lord. I'm going to tell you the Lord is deserving of the death of our pity parties. The Lord is deserving of the death of our desires and the acceptance of His. He's deserving of that. This is exactly what He did in the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you find yourself in the Garden of Gethsemane, I pray you find the strength to say, Father, Your will be done and not mine. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand to our feet together?